invite you to turn to Joshua chapter 10. If you've been visiting, uh, or if you're visiting with us uh, or newer to our church, we've been in a series in Joshua, going through the book of Joshua. It's part of the Old Testament. It's uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, if you have a Bible there and want to open it. Um, and uh, you have to understand something about Joshua. Half the book, or almost half the book, is about war. Israel's at war. They've come to a land that Abraham, the father of Israel, the first Israelite, uh, it's where he lived. And while he was alive, God came to him and said, look, I am giving you this land. This will be your land. And uh, I'm not going to do it yet. And he says, actually, in Genesis 15, 16, when he's giving these promises, he says, it's not going to happen yet because, and up on the screen you see it, the sin of the Amorites is not we got it going? Maybe not. It'll come up someday. The sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And what was happening was God was saying, look, I, I don't want to take, I don't want to come and take this land because I, I want to give the Amorites a chance. And even in that, there's this prophecy that hints that Am, the Amorites will probably not turn to God. And it speaks to the heart and the will of the Amorites, uh, that they don't want to recognize God at this point when he's talking to Abraham, and they won't bow under his rule as king. And Psalms 2 asks a question. It says this, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. It's a famous song, Handel's Messiah. I don't know if you've heard that. This is a famous song. I'm not going to try to sing it. It's a baritone part anyway. Um, but uh, this word, well, yeah, I was going to start to do it, but... Um, uh, you can go listen to it. He writes a whole, a whole song within that oratorio about why do the nations rage against God. It's famous scripture. See, there's an ancient war going on, one that really never makes the news, uh, one that's under the surface and you don't necessarily really hear about. Nations raging against God, rulers counseling together against the Lord, people seeking to destroy the bonds and the cords that would bind them to Yahweh, the high king, and his eternal law that rules this planet. And we see it play out most vividly as nations persecute those who follow Christ, even to the point of death. In nations and rulers and people that legalize that which is evil, evil and criminalize that which is good. And making heroes out of those who are living evil lives and demonizing those who would seek to live righteous lives. People and nations fly into rage against the Lord. They plot the destruction of the Lord. They throw off righteousness. They throw off holiness. It's an old war. Old war. It was a war the Amorites were in 
with God and that stretched on 100 years and 200 years and 300 years and 400 years, 500 years, 600 years, they raged against Yahweh, the high king. Even as in that 600 year, when it was coming to an end or drawing close, Yahweh was bringing war to them. And they saw war coming and they still did not stop. In fact, their rage grew. Their plotting increased. And the book of Joshua is the war that God brings to the land of Canaan against those who have plotted against them and raged against them. It's that war. And today we are going to cover seven years of war, 18 battles, 33 kings, and one brief message. Up on the screen, it shows a map of the conquered territory. The red is all the territory that Joshua conquered in his life in these seven years or so. And it could be a little bit longer, perhaps. Uh, the scholars, everybody kind of says, eh, seven seems about right. Now, you may look at that map and go, well, that red doesn't really include all the land that we know Israel to have. And that would be true. That's the other color, the green. That's the size of the kingdom at the end of Solomon's reign. Through King Saul, through King David, into Solomon, the height of the Israelite uh, nation in terms of land was the green. So we're going to look and just keep covering these wars that happened that represent the red up there on the screen. As we go through this, we're going to see more importantly uh, the fury of the wrath of the high king. And the author goes through great pains as we go through this time to make sure everyone knows this is not Israel fighting as much as this is the high king Yahweh fighting. Last week, beginning at chapter 10, we saw five tribes come together and to say, hey, look, we got to rally together. Israel's on our doorstep. Gibeon, this royal city, had just surrendered and made peace with Israel, and that was betrayal and also a severe threat to their own safety. So they all rally together. They come and attack this city called Gibeon, and Israel hears about it, and they come rushing in. God promises them a victory. They get the victory. Israel's army against five armies, and it's this amazing display of God's power. Uh, I think one verse in there talks about God bringing this hailstone and more men died from this miraculous storm from God, these hailstones, than actually from the sword of the Israelites. The, the armies were routed, and we pick up in verse 16, the five kings that had come together hid themselves in the cave at Makeda, and it was told to Joshua, hey, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Makeda. Joshua said, roll our stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies. Attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. And when Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant of that, had, that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Makeda. Not one person died. It says all the people returned safe on that battle. 
So they go chasing after these armies because in that day, God had given them all five armies. And, and Joshua said, let's not miss our opportunities. We can deal with the kings later. Let's win this war. Let's destroy these armies now while they're still unprotected before they can get into their cities and fortify and make it difficult to conquer these cities. So they finished out the battle. In verse 22, they all come back together. Joshua says, open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to meet me from the cave. And they did so. And brought those five kings out to him from the cave, and the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with them, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And then they came near and they put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed be strong and courageous for thus the lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight and afterward joshua struck them and put them to death and he hanged them on five trees and they hung on trees until evening but at the time of going down to the sun joshua commanded and they took them down from the trees threw them into the cave where they hidden themselves they set large stones against the mouth of the cave which remains to this very day. He has these men put their feet on their necks. It's a forceful, intense moment. And he calls them to move from I believe in God to I believe God. So a lot of people, I think a lot of us in our lives, they say we believe in God, but do we believe God? And in this moment, it's seared into their minds and into the army, oh, God's going to do this. Like we can believe God is going to do what he said. And it's from that victory and that moment of conquest that you see the southern kingdom fall in the rest of chapter 10. It describes the conquest of other kingdoms, and there's a word that's repeated over and over again in chapter 10. It actually starts even before this with the, the other five armies. Verse 10, it says Joshua, or the, uh, the Lord struck them with a great blow. And you see in verse 20, Joshua had finished striking them. And you see again in verse 26, Joshua struck them. In verse 28, Joshua struck them. And the king, in verse 29, he struck it with the edge of the sword. Verse, 30, or verse 32, he struck it with the edge of the sword. Verse 33, struck it with the edge of the sword. Verse 35, verse 37, verse 39, verse 40, verse 41. You see this over and over and over again. Joshua struck them with the edge of the sword, destroyed every person, man, woman, child. And at the summary of it, it says this in verse 40, Joshua struck the whole land, the whole country and the Geb and the low land and the slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining but devoted to destruction all that breathed just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for 
Israel. Two things that the author says in summation of the southern, I would say, uh, battles. God commanded this and God did this. The high king, after 600 years of defiance, rebelling, raging against them, throwing off their bonds and cords that tied them to their true high king, he said, enough. And he brought his judgment. And at this point, you would think the northern kings would look at this and, and start to do the math and realize that after maybe 14 kings and nations later that maybe they should rethink this whole idea of raging and fighting against God. Israel's undefeated against every city and every tribe and king. There was one battle that they lost because of sin, dealt with the sin, came back and destroyed it. So Psalms 2 says this. It says, He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. The psalm goes on, he says, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. They see the wrath of God, they see the fury of God, and, and they ignore the signs. Not these kings. That's how deep the rage goes. That's how deep the plotting goes. There's got to be a way to beat God. There's got to be a way around this. There's got to be a chink in the armor. There's got to be something that we could do that could get us out from under God, the king. So chapter 11 starts with another battle. This one, there is a principal player in this. It's the king of Hazor, Jabin. Over in verse 10, it says this about Jabin, that at that time, Hazor was formerly the head of all those kingdoms. So he is the royal city. You're talking about the king, the royal city for all kinds of kingdoms in the northern area of Israel, if you imagine that map. And he brings all of them together. He says, hey, look, we are going to form an army like we've never seen, and we are going to destroy Israel. And they bring in this time chariots and horses, which Israel's never faced any kind of a cavalry. And that's difficult to fight when you're infantry. Militarily speaking, the northern kings have the advantage on the field. Not only that, they, they pick the battlefield and they camp there. And in verse 6, it says this, The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give, them all, or I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell on them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as the great Sidon and Misraphoth, Maim, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah. They struck them until he left none remaining, and Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. And Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck it with its, its king with the sword, for Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. They struck with the sword all who were in it, devoted them to destruction. 
There was none left that breathed, and he burned Hazor with fire. And all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoted them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. Notice the word struck again and again, and the involvement of God again and again, and God gave them over. And, and interesting, this city, there's only one city he burns in the northern campaign, and it's Hazor. There was two other cities he burned. The first city was Jericho. The second city was Ai, royal cities. And, and it's as if they represented all that was evil and all that had pervaded the land. And God's saying, there will be nothing that lives in this city. This city will be utterly destroyed. It says, burn the chariots, hamstring the horses. Why do that? Back in Deuteronomy chapter 20, up on the screen, it says this. It says, when you go out to war against your enemies and you see, ho- and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, You shall not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. It's a prediction. And here it is. Chariots, horses, an army that's larger than them, and he says you won't be afraid of them. And and you're thinking, well, why not at least keep the horses and the chariots? Psalms chapter 20, I think, gives the answer. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. God was saying, look, horses and chariots and me, if you have horses and chariots and me, all you really have is me. And if you don't have horses and chariots, but just me, all you have is just me. You don't need horses. You don't need chariots when you have God. And what's interesting as you watch this play out, eventually as you get into the story of the kings of Israel, what do they start to acquire? Horses and chariots. And we get to, I would say, probably the most pivotal two verses of Joshua right here in chapter 11. It says in verse 19, we're getting a summary statement at this point of all that's happened up until now. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed as the Lord commanded Moses. These two verses explain what just happened. God hardened their hearts so that they would be destroyed. That creates a lot of questions, I'm I'm sure, in minds. Like, they didn't have any choice on this. Like, What exactly does that mean? He made it impossible for them to surrender. I mean, how do you how do you say that's fair? I mean, it comes off like God's just manipulating these kings and simply just wants to kill them. 
like the kings had no choice. It's a very real question that you have to wrestle through. Um, I've read a lot. Uh, I want to credit one, one author in particular, a guy named Robert Hubbard, and his commentary he wrote on Joshua. Um, as I speak here over the next probably three to five minutes, uh, half of this stuff is his and half's mine. It's all inter- intermingled. So just want to give credit to where credit's due. Um, but the first thing, uh, as we start to try to understand what this means, um, there's a question I think that, that we have to ask. Was there an exception? And if there is an exception, then what does that say about God? And what does that say about this hardening of hearts? And the thing is, there's an exception. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. So there's an exception. Here we are in the middle of all these people, all these nations, they're all around each other, they all have the same kind of background, and yet there's one nation that chose not to fight. And if you go back and read, you find that the motivation for why they didn't fight is they actually did believe in God, and that God was going to wipe them out. And the only way to survive was to make peace. And they were real deceptive about it, but God saw their belief. And it was enough, even if the motives were all messed up. There was another exception. One woman in a whole city. If you go back and read, it was her faith in God, her belief in God. And she didn't have it all figured out, but she knew it was God giving him the victories. Both the Gibeonites and Rahab out of Jericho credited God for winning and fighting these wars, not Israelite. And he saved them. And he spared them. So if there's an exception, why isn't it that these other kings and the rest of the nations, why didn't they take it? They had just as much information. And here's where you get to an understanding about this idea of hardening. And to understand hardening, uh, there's a famous passage in Exodus. There's about 10 chapters where it talks about the king of Egypt, Pharaoh. And about 23 to 25 times, this word hardening of heart occurs. And about 40% of those, God caused the hardening of the heart. Uh, Another 40% was uh, Pharaoh himself choosing to harden his heart, and then there's about 20% where it's passive, and it was unclear who was doing what, only that his heart was hardened. But before any of these statements about Pharaoh's heart were made, God said something to Moses at the burning bush. Back when, before it even had happened, he was still way out away from, from Egypt, and he said to him in Exodus 3, he says, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. God says, I know the will of the king of Egypt. He will not let my people go. See, at this point, before it even happened, God knew Pharaoh would not do it. God was not overriding Pharaoh's heart. God was not in some way changing the course that Pharaoh had been on. God was coming in and saying, Pharaoh's trajectory, his lifelong path has been one of raging against me and plotting against me. It is as clear as day this is where he's going. 
He has never deviated from it. And so what I am going to do right now is say, you can have your way. Fine. You will not step out of this path that you have chosen. That's the hardening of the heart. It is the path that people choose and continue to choose. And at some point, God says, you can have the path that you've chosen. And it will lead to war with me. Pharaoh did it. These kings did it. And God sealed the direction. And it's irreversibly gave them exactly what they wanted. War. Enter the southern kingdom, the northern kingdoms. There's no way they're going to bow before Israel, especially God, Yahweh, the high king. They make their plans. They refuse to make peace. And, peace. and in each one, that's the crazy thing, each one thought that they could somehow beat God. I mean, each one thought, oh, no, I got, I got the plan. I got and they're all destroyed. Royal cities destroyed. People destroyed. In verse 21, there's two little editorial things that kind of happen here at the end. One is the reference to this group of people called the Anakim. You see that in verses 21 through 23. What's that about? And remember when the spies came back after they scouted the land? And they were terrified of how big all the people were. The Anakim were the giants in the land. And here at the very end, it's as if God is saying, I took out everyone, even the giants. The giants you were so scared of and refused to enter the land. It, make no mistake, they're bringing up to the front them. God's making a point. I am the high king. No one, no one, no one can rage against me and win. No one can plan and plot against me and win. Moving on to chapter 12, it's one of those things where we all skip because it's a bunch of names and places we don't, we don't know, don't recognize. The first six verses are the kings that are defeated by Moses. There's two of them right before they get into the land. These are the kings. There's two of them. And it talks about the territories and the lands that they, that they owned. Chapter 12, verse 7 are the kings that Joshua defeated. And it says, first, all the territory, the, the land markers, everything, the, the, all that got conquered. We saw it on the map. And then it goes through and it starts to list king by king by king by king. And if you have the NIV, I have the ESV, and it, it just does it like a run-on sentence. I mean, it's just one after another. I like what the NIV does because it reads like a, a tally sheet, like a ledger, bank account. One king, read the name. If you have the NIV, do you know what I'm talking about? Show it around to people if you've got it. It's great, because I think that's what it looked like. It was a ledger. And it goes, this king, check. This king, check. This king, one, one, 
one, leaving at the end in silence one king left standing, only one. I want to read this. I'm going to read the list of kings. And, and what I want you to do is respond. I'm going to read the, the name of the king, and you're going to respond as a church to say one. It's a sobering thing to see the power, the sovereignty of the high king. So here we go. In verse 9, the king of Jericho, the king of Ai, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, the king of Gezer, the king of Debir, the king of Geder, the king of Hormah, the king of Arad, the king of Libna, the king of Adullam, the king of Makeda, the king of Bethel, the king of Tapua, the king of Hefer, the king of Aphek, the king of Lasharon, the king of Madon, the king of Hazor, the king of Shimron Moran, the king of Akshaf, the king of Tanakh, the king of Megiddo, the king of Kadesh, the king of Jokneam, the king of Dor, the king of Goim, and the king of Terza. Why do the nations rage? Why do the people plot against the Lord? As you go through your life, as you walk out these doors, as I do it, we are going to be faced yet again with seeing people war against God. And it may seem like they're winning, and it may seem like God's outnumbered, and it may seem like God's not doing anything, and it may seem like a lot of things. But in reality, there is only one king left standing at the end of the day, is Yahweh. And every nation will account for how they have plotted and how they have raged against God. Every ruler will account for it. I was just talking to someone who's in a philosophy class at a college. Every philosophy teacher who rages against God will one day have to account. There is a day coming. It's a scene in Revelation. It's the high king. There's only one king on the throne, and there's only one throne in this scene. 
the great white throne, him who is seated on it. John says, I saw the dead and the great and the small standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. If you are in a rut and a path that is contrary to God and you are trying to throw him off and his law and his rule, hear hear God's word, hear his heart. He wants to give mercy and he will make exceptions, but there will be a day when that will not be possible for you. And I would encourage you to turn to him. Let's pray.